Well, to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one. This is where we're going to be hanging out for most of the day. We're going to be starting in verse 26. Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. We'll read a, uh, we're going to read a, a good chunk of scripture, so I want you to stick with me. There's a lot of great stuff, but it's one of the most beautiful sections of scripture, and I love it. And so I'm hoping that we get to go into it today, see the hope that we have um, through the season of Advent. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. I'm going to start reading all the way down through verse 56. It says, In the sixth month, the angel, Gabriel, was sent from God to, his, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. and The power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to, uh, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Verse 46, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy And he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into your scriptures today, I pray that you would speak through your spirit to us, that our hearts would be filled with wonder and amazement, that we would meditate on the good news that Jesus has come into the world to bring hope, life, and redemption to us. 
And that as we meditate and think on these glorious truths that we would be turned to praise. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. My name is Andrew. I'm the youth minister at Redeemer in Amarillo. And I'm really glad just to get to be with you guys again and be able to teach uh, you guys again, especially teaching on such a beautiful passage like Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. At Redeemer, and I think here at Liberty, we want to encourage each other to redeem the season of Advent because it's so easy to overlook what Christmas represents and what Christmas is about. See, Advent is the season of preparation. And I'm sure you and your family have begun preparing your homes and, and the, the outside of your house with decorations and the inside of your house with different things. And here, even inside the church, we have some decorations for, the church, uh, for, for Christmas as we prepare our, uh, our houses and our lives with Christmas things. But it's more, about more than that. We want to not only prepare our homes and ourselves, we want to prepare our hearts for, for Christmas. But what is Christmas? What is Christmas? Well, uh, I'm kind of a history nerd. Last time, if you were here, I talked a little bit about history. Um, there is a really interesting piece of archaeology called the calendar inscription in Prien. And here's what the calendar inscription is. I was going to have a picture of it, um, but it, here's all you need to have. I thought it's silly to have a picture of it because it's just a giant rock. So imagine a giant rock of your choosing, whatever it may look like. And on this rock is inscribed something very interesting. I'm going to read what is inscribed on this rock that was found in modern day Turkey. And here's what this rock says. It says, God has sent him as a savior for us to make wars cease, to create peaceful order everywhere. And the birthday of this God was the beginning of the world of gospels that have come to men through him. So Paulus Fabius Maximus, the proconsul of the province of, of Asia, which is also modern day Turkey, has devised a way of honoring him, namely that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with the birth of his, of his uh, with, with the, should begin with the year of his birth. So just to recap, there's a giant stone and on this stone is written that this God's arrival in history would mark the, the entrance into a new era, an era of peace and an era of order and an era of prosperity for all humanity as his gospels go to the ends of the earth. Now, you and I sitting here in Dalhart in 2023, we might hear that and we might be thinking, this is a proclamation about Jesus, whose birth actually did split time into two different eras, right? We have BC, before Christ. We have AD, Anno Domini, right? And so we have a Lord who has split time into two different periods. We might think that the calendar inscription in Prien is actually about Jesus, but this proclamation is actually from before Jesus' time. It dates to 9 BC, and it's actually about a guy named Caesar Augustus. The decree was written as to commemorate the birth of Augustus, who was a, the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in the eyes of the Roman Empire, he was the son of God. He was a deity himself. And it was apparently believed that the birth of Augustus should be celebrated as the dawn of a new era of mankind. And this is actually not that strange for Roman Caesars. Augustus, who was the emperor during Jesus' birth, and Tiberius, who was the emperor during Jesus' life, were viewed as deities. They were viewed as gods by the people during their time. If you find a coin from Jesus' lifetime, you might see something on that coin that says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Which is why it's ironic that the great emperor Caesar Augustus would be overshadowed by the birth of another. He was not born into the riches of Rome, but he was born into a stable in an insignificant town in, uh, called Bethlehem. 
He was not the king of an earthly empire, but he was the king of heaven and earth. And today we're studying the proclamation of Jesus' incarnation, a totally different proclamation, a proclamation that we hold to today, different than the calendar inscription in Priam, which none of us are even aware of. Some of us don't even know who Caesar Augustus is. So today we're looking at the proclamation of a new king, a different king, a king that here in the year 2023, the year of our Lord, we're looking back at the beginning of a new age. Our hearts will be filled with wonder. We see what God did on that first Christmas day. And that's what Advent is. It's a season of remembering God's goodness in Jesus' incarnation. So today, I want us to look backward as a way of preparing our hearts moving forward into this season of Advent. And I wanted to divide our scripture into three different sections. So if you're a note taker, three different sections we're going to be studying through today. The first one will be the proclamation of incarnation. Next, we're going to look at the invitation of incarnation. And the last thing we're going to look at is the celebration of the incarnation. So we're going to look at the proclamation of the incarnation, the invitation of the incarnation, and then lastly, we're going to look at the celebration of the incarnation. So point number one, the proclamation of the incarnation. So Luke 1, 26 starts with a proclamation of a different sort. Look with me at Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. So this proclamation is made to Mary, but who is Mary? Well, she's from Nazareth, which is a small town. And she is betrothed. That's what we can know from this scripture, that she is betrothed, which is to say that she is going to marry a man named Joseph. Now, traditionally in this culture, families would arrange for their daughters to be married. And the year leading up to that wedding was a time called betrothal, similar to what we would call engagement. And because she is betrothed, we can probably guess that she is between the ages of 12 to 14 or 15, okay? Now, this has been common throughout all of history up till about the 1700s. So if you're sitting there thinking like, this is really weird, it may be weird for you. It is not weird for them. It is completely normal in their time for this to be the case. So it might be weird for you, not weird for them. In other, way, in other words, here's what I'm trying to say. Mary is normal. Mary is no different than any of us. And up to this point, she has led a completely ordinary existence. She experiences the normal realities of a normal life, which is to say she experiences the beauties and the joys of living and the difficulties and the brokenness that comes along with the lives that we lead. That's to say our lives, our normal lives, have hard times in them, whether it's kids or marriage, or money, or work, or family, or politics, or school, or friendships, whatever it may be. Often these aspects of our lives bring immense joy and beauty and gladness, but they can also bring pain and difficulty, heartache. So much so that we often find ourselves worn down and beat up by our normal everyday lives. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel sometimes. Sometimes life just wears me down. And if Mary is normal, she experienced these realities as well. Now at this point, I think it's important for me to point out that there is no indication in this text of any, uh, in any part of, this, of the Bible that Mary has any particular worthiness. There is no particular worthiness on Mary's part. God did not look down on Mary and think, ah, she is better than everyone else. Or finally, a worthy vessel. 
God did not have favor on Mary because she was special. God had favor on Mary, which made her special. God's favor on Mary is not based on anything in Mary or what Mary has done or can do. It is based solely on his love for her. God's choosing of Mary is completely unconditional. It is not conditioned on what she brings to the table or any special qualities present within her. Now, this may be controversial to some people, but if we look at the scriptures, this is how God typically works. His love towards his people is not conditioned on anything in us. The word that we use for that in church is grace. Right? We call that grace. We see this represented throughout the scriptures a lot. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us that for you were, uh, when this is God talking to the people of Israel, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Romans 9 verse 11 tells us the mystery of God's love. And he says, though they had not been born yet that, and, and had done neither good nor bad, God loved Jacob. He set his love on Jacob. 1 John 4 19 tells us that we love God because he first loved us. See, God initiates relationship with you because he loves you. God's love is not conditional on any goodness present in us or performance by us. And that's good news because my performance is typically poor at best, right? God looks on normal people like you and like me and Mary dealing with the normal brokenness of our sin and a world broken by sin. He looks on us with love and in love, he proclaims a message of redemption and hope. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's a really old book that I'm sure you're aware of, the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. It's a great book. Parents, if you haven't read it with your kids, it's a really awesome book to read with your kids. I tutor at a school in Amarillo, and one summer they, made it, they asked us to read books with the kids, and I was like, let's read Chronicles of Narnia. And we started reading with it, and it still holds up to this day. The kids in my class loved it. They thought it was so great, so wonderful. I couldn't get super deep into some of the stuff in there, but I really uh, enjoyed getting to read that with them. And here's kind of the basic premise of the story. There's a family of four children called the Pevensies, and they live in London, which is being bombed by Nazi uh, Germany. And so the children are uh, made to leave London and go live out in the country in this giant stately manor owned by a professor. And the kids who are just normal kids are born and they want to go play in this giant house. And what better to play in a giant, big, stately manor than hide and seek? So the kids start playing hide and seek all over the house. And Lucy, the youngest, finds a giant wardrobe. And she thinks this is the best place to hide. So she goes into this wardrobe and she keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and finds herself in a magical land called Narnia. 
It's winter there and it's cold. So she takes one of the coats out of the wardrobe and begins walking and finds a lamppost. And near this lamppost, she finds a, a magical creature called Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus is, I think, half goat, half human. I don't know. I don't know. It's, he's not, he, he's weird. But anyway, Lucy finds him and, and Mr. Tumnus is so glad to see her. He's overjoyed to see Lucy and he invites Lucy back to his cottage so she can be warmed up by the fire and drink some hot tea. And so she goes back to his house and Mr. Tumnus begins to cry and weep. And he begins to tell her the story about Narnia. And he tells her that Narnia has not always been this way. It's not always been cold, but this winter that they're having in Narnia is, is different. It never ends. In his words, in Narnia, it's always winter, but never Christmas. Always winter, but never Christmas. Think about that. A winter without Christmas. Christmas is the best part of winter, right? You get all the, all the negatives, but never the payoff of Christmas. And in Narnia, there is a curse put out by a witch. And this witch has made it always winter, but never Christmas. Now, back to our story. For a world where man toils in the futility of a normal life, in a world broken by our sin and the sin of others, it may seem like always winter. It may seem like things don't get better. It may seem like there is no light at the end of the tunnel. It may seem like it will never thaw out until the proclamation of the birth of Jesus. A light has shone into the cold, dark winter of our ordinary lives. Good news that the winter is ending. Christmas is coming. John chapter one, verse nine tells us this, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world and he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet we did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood or of the will of the flesh, but nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, here's, here's what we're getting at. The inertia of sin, the continuation of sin, the, the trajectory that sin has this world on would, be, would set the world to be always this way. It, it, the brokenness of man would have gone on forever and ever and ever. It would always be winter unless a light broke into our darkened world. And that light was Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. C.S. Lewis tells us that the son of God became man so that men could become sons of God. Now, this hope that we have, this is the warm light of the gospel, breaking into our cold, dark winter that its sin has set into our fractured world. This is an out of the ordinary event, and it causes us to step out of our ordinary lives and to think bigger thoughts than would otherwise be possible. The incarnation of Jesus is more than a mere proclamation of God's plan for redemption. It's an, an invitation for us to step into the warm light of the gospel and out of the winter of our broken, sinful world. Which brings us to point number two, the invitation of the incarnation. So what do we do with the gospel when we hear it? When we hear the proclamation that Jesus is, has come, that Jesus has died for our sins, when we hear the good news of the gospel, what do we do with it? Well, what does Mary do? Let's follow her example. Look at Luke chapter one, verse 29. 
It says that Mary was greatly troubled at the saying. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So Mary, she ponders the proclamation of the incarnation. She ponders the proclamation that this baby would be born into the world, this Messiah would be born into the world through her. Her mind dwells intently on it, carefully thinking not only of the promises of God that he has just given to her, but the implication of these promises on her own life. What are the ripple effects of this, this promise that God has just given to me? Now, I don't want to be uh, you know, a kind of a curmudgeon or a grumpy man, but I do think that our culture seems allergic to deep thought and consideration. We live in a culture of clickbait and headlines and TikTok and short videos and things that will grab our attention so we don't ever sink down deeply on something. But the scriptures call on us to follow Mary's example of deep thought, especially on the words of God. Psalm 119 verse 15 tells us, I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways. That's what Mary does when she hears the words of the angel. Mary meditates. She fixes her eyes and her mind, her heart on the words of God as she discerns her place in this grand story of redemption that God is telling. And this is something that we all must do. Each and every one of us must must, uh, consider our place in the grand story of redemption that God is telling The scriptures tell us that meditation is not just for monks and enlightened academics, but it is for all who hear the proclamation of God's word. It is to be a vital and regular part of a Christian's life to remind ourselves regularly that the light has come into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We need to remind ourselves of that all the time, especially because we are bombarded by proclamations of darkness at every turn. We need to be reminded that Jesus has come. Our stories can so often be overwhelmed with darkness and pain, just of our normal life, but also of our, of our world, of our broken world. And meditation, here's what it really is. Meditation is, our, is us telling ourselves God's story more than we tell ourselves any other story. More than we tell ourselves any other story, we are telling ourselves God's story. What are our stories? Well, what's the story that you tell, your, you tell yourself in the mirror each day? Who are you? What are you like? What do you stand for? What's the story that other people tell you that you adopted as your identity? Where did you come from? How were you raised? See, meditation is not a command to leave behind your individual stories in the way that God has made you, but rather it's an invitation to have your story redeemed and reshaped as you view your story in light of God's story. That's what Mary is doing here. This news is changing the way that Mary views her own life. She is, she is recalibrating the way she views her life in light of what God is doing. I ran across this quote this week. I just thought it was a really interesting quote. And this is a, a guy named Carl Henry. He said, because of the incarnation, Christians should not be consumed by the thought of, look what this world is coming to, but rather look what has come into this world. Amen. Right? Think about that. It is so easy to be enraged in our world. It is so easy to be, to be scared by the things that we see on the news or see in our world or see in our communities or see in our homes. And we often think, look at this world's coming to. But as Christians, we need to be thinking, it's not as great as what's come into this world. Jesus has come into this world, so we don't have to fear all those things that we see on a regular basis. 
We can have our story, and even as dark as our story is, recalibrated, reoriented around the story that Jesus has come into the world. And that's why the incarnation of Jesus is so powerful. The incarnation of Jesus redeems and reorients our imagination. It expands the bounds of what you and I, in our hearts and our minds, believe to be possible. Because the infinite has become finite. The God of the universe has become a babe. Light has shone into the darkness. The creator has entered into his creation. You can be forgiven. These are all new realities that are possible because of the incarnation. And while the incarnation expands the borders of our imagination, it's certainly not an invitation to leave behind reason. Mary doesn't do that. Look at verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? One of probably the biggest criticisms of Christianity that I hear is, how can you believe in something that's so foolish like the virgin birth? And the answer to that to me is simple. If I believe in God who created the natural world and he ordered it, I certainly believe in his ability to upset and interrupt that order to accomplish his own purposes. If God created the world, made everything, then he certainly can change how things are working in the world that he created. That is not a big intellectual leap for me. Denial of miracles ultimately places us in a hopeless and unenchanted world. There is a reason that this section of scripture is full of miracles. Think about all the miracles that we just see in this little section of scripture. The appearance of an angel, Mary becoming pregnant, Elizabeth becoming pregnant, Zechariah not being able to speak, God becoming man, God having favor on a normal girl. You could go on, there's more than that, but those are just the ones I listed. See, miracles give hope of a reality outside of a natural order, which insists that this story is the only story and that this only story that we live in is rife with decay and it ends in death. That is the alternative story to Christianity, to our belief. There's a really interesting podcast that I began listening to and it's called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And here's what they're asserting in this podcast. They're saying that there was this movement back in the 2000s called New Atheism. And New Atheism sought to completely destroy Christianity and not only to destroy Christianity and Christian belief, but to turn a people of atheists into militantly against Christians, to hate Christians. And so this uh, anti-religious group, New Atheists, they began to meet together and they began to listen to the teachings of their greatest teachers. And they had books that they would read together. It sounds like a church if you ask me. But in, in the way they began to do this, their whole assertion was there is no God. And outside of that, there was no other assertion. And here's the interesting part about this. Here's what they're saying. They're saying the world that you see is all there is. Now, you should go find meaning in your life. You should go and live a life that's valuable and worthy. But the world that you live in is all there is. You're going to die. You're going to rot. It really doesn't matter. And people rightfully did not like this. New atheism has completely died out because what they're telling people, what they're inviting people into was the death of who they were. They're basically saying to people, you don't matter. The universe is indifferent about you. And you know what? You should be glad about that. You're free now doesn't work that way. These people rightly rejected this. They tried to live this way, but none of us live this way. None of us live as if we don't matter. None of us live as if we don't have value and purpose given to us by God. We all know we do. See, the denial of miracles just places us in a world that is unenchanted. 
It's the reason that this section of scripture is so full of miracles. The Bible is trying to tell us something. That miracles give us hope of reality outside of this natural order. The things that we see in this world are not all that there is. Miracles are a glimpse of light into a dark world that evidence an even brighter and incomprehensible reality that ends in hope and redemption and life. See, and Christian meditation is to live in light of that great reality. It's to see our stories in light of God's story and tell ourselves that story more than we tell ourselves any other story. No matter what story you are telling yourself, what story you've adopted, what story has been placed on you, tell yourself the story of the gospel more than that story. See, meditation is this really interesting thing. It's this bridge between hearing and responding. We hear the proclamation of what God has done for us. And we are not called to just move on with our lives, but to stop and meditate and consider deeply. And as we meditate and, and consider deeply, we move into a new area, area, which is responding. So which brings us to point number three, our last point. Celebration of the incarnation. So the angel leaves Mary and she travels to stay with her uh, relative Elizabeth. No doubt, unable to think of anything other than the Messiah who is in her belly. Can you imagine the joy that she must have felt in her heart? That God would bless mankind through her baby. The joy of the incarnation could not be kept inside and we see it overflowing out of her mouth in songs of praise. See, meditation on the reality of the incarnation has to do something for you. If you stop and you meditate on the reality that God has come into this world to save you, it changes things. It must produce joy. Joy must be expressed. Joy expressed is what we Christians call praise, which is exactly what Mary does. Look with me at Luke chapter one, verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him. And his, uh, from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud to the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. See, the incarnation is just as good news today as it was to Mary. It is a truth that we can meditate on at all times. But because for us, winter has ended, ended and it is Christmas. We don't live in the curse of Narnia. And for Christians, we should be the most hopeful people because each day we can meditate on the reality that the incarnation has come. And we, should, we can let that joy overflow into a song of praise. One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. And these are the words of O Holy Night. I think this is the second or third verse, but here's what it says. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. See, Jesus' incarnation brings us hope. Hope that otherwise we never would have had. So, Liberty Baptist, 
May we not only be a people who hear the proclamation of Jesus' incarnation, but let us meditate. Let us think deeply on God's story of redemption and our place in that story. And as our hearts relish in the hope of the incarnation, let us express our joy as we praise our glorious God during the season of Advent. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the reality that you have sent your son into this world. That you have shown light into the darkness. That the infinite God of the world has come into the world as a baby. And so Lord, we're glad that we're not just left to deal with this world on our own. We're so glad that the the beauty and the power of the incarnation is strong to this day. So Lord, I pray that this would be a people of meditation, deep meditation on the simple truths of the incarnation, deep meditation on the the reality that God's story is bigger than whatever story that we want to tell ourselves and we can find ourselves as a part of God's great story that he is telling throughout all of history. God, what could be better than that? Let us find our place in that story. Let us be glad about our place in that story. Let us be thankful that you have made a place for us in that story. And God, I pray that as we continue to think on these things, as we go into a time of singing and a time of communion, that we would continue to meditate and that our hearts would be filled with joy and that joy would be expressed in the way that we talk to one another, in the way that we raise our children, in the way that we go to our jobs, in the way that we go to our schools, that we would be people of hope, expressing joy through the way we praise you in our jobs, in our lives, and in our school, and in our play, whatever we're doing. God, we love you. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. If you would please stand, we're going to a time of worship.